So we are in a series in the book of Acts. Today's passage is Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 41. So grab your Bibles. We have extra Bibles. If you don't have one, grab one. We want everyone to have a Bible and everyone to be able to read and follow along. So it's on, if you're using a blue Bible, it's page 1021. The passage is Acts 13, 13 through 41. That's a long one, isn't it? Last week we did eight verses. The week before that we did four. So we got a long passage. So this passage is the first sermon in Acts that we have from the Apostle Paul. So we know he's been preaching, but this is the first time we hear exactly what he's saying. And I want to tell you that his message is the same message that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 7, right before he was martyred for his faith. It's the same message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's one of the longest messages in the book of Acts. We usually don't handle this many verses on one day, but there were some unique reasons why I wanted to do that. And so what we do here is we are, I'm going to read the passage out loud. We're going to ask that you, everyone follow along. And then we usually take around four or five minutes and read the passage to ourselves. But this is a longer passage, so I would ask the table leaders to maybe give six or seven minutes. Uh, read it. Make observations. Form questions. After we read it, After we read it as individuals, that is, um, we'll have a small group discussion based on these four questions on the right-hand side in your worship guide. So what does the passage say? What does it mean? What will I do in response? And is there any good news worth sharing in this passage? Now, if you don't get to every question due to time limitations, it's totally fine. But we want you to participate as much as you would like to in our discussion. So with that being said, you, you know, one more thing. Next week, we're going to finish the chapter. So this week is the sermon. Next week, we're going to look at the people's response to what was preached in our passage this week. So next week will be verses 42 through 52. So write that down and please study that uh, yourself uh, during the week, if you would. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 13. So... Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king 
of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Or who? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus... As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So take some time, dig into this passage personally, quietly, as much as you can. And when the time is right, your table leader will begin the discussion. After our discussion, we'll head back to the other room and I will preach on this passage. All right, what's the main point of our text? You all, the Lord Jesus Christ was killed, he died, he rose again, and you better not reject him because he's the only one that can forgive your sin. That's what this passage says. Let's look at it more closely. Last week, they went to the island of Cyprus. They had quite an encounter there with a demonic man. Paul looked him straight in the eye and called him out of his evil. And last week we learned that we need to look straight into the eyes of our opponents, the opponents of the enemies of God. We need to speak the truth to them boldly and not be afraid. So they leave Cyprus and they sail north in the Mediterranean Sea. They hit what is now the south central coast of Turkey. That's Perga and Pamphylia. And then they go north until they get to Antioch of Pisidia. But wait a minute. Didn't they just leave Antioch two weeks ago? Yes, they did. 
But that is a different Antioch. That is Antioch of Syria, which is at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. So now they're in a different Antioch. There were actually, I, I, I think I recall reading that there were seven Antiochs. There was this real conceited ruler who was quite full of himself, who thought very highly of himself and decided to name a lot of places after him. I think it was seven. Anyway, and these are two of them that we've seen in these three passages so far in Acts chapter 13. So anyway, they went off the coast. They get in Antioch of Pisidia. They go to a synagogue. What is a synagogue? It is a local Jewish place of worship. They meet on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And honestly, I think it probably looked something similar to like what we do most Sundays. I really do. I, I, you know, they had, the, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They read them. There was teaching. There was worship. Um, there was fellowship. It was similar to what we do now. And many people say the New Testament church gatherings were based on that synagogue pattern. So anyway, Paul went there. Because he understood that the gospel was sent to the Jews first. And there were Jews all over the Roman Empire. And he went there. They were reading the law and the prophets. It says in verse 15. And the leader of the synagogue said, Hey, do you have a word for us? You all, I don't think that poor man knew what was about to happen. I don't think he knew and understood what was coming. So we get into verses. The, the message really begins in verse 16. And he speaks to them. He says, hey, you Jewish people, men of Israel, and all you who fear God. See, they were a long ways away from their home base, Jewish territory. At this stage of history, Jews were scattered in many different places. And as they had scattered, some Gentiles came in and began to worship the Jewish God. And so he's speaking to faithful Jews, He's speaking to Gentile, God-fearing Jewish proselytes uh, or, or converts. He knows his audience. And he gives a summary of the Old Testament, you all. He gives a summary of the Old Testament. From verse 16 through 25, it is a summary. And the stories that he's telling about the Exodus and conquering Canaan and, and the judges and King Saul and King David, you all, those are the stories. That is the content of the law and the prophets that they were reading before Paul was invited to come up and speak. So as he begins talking to them, it becomes clear that what their common ground is. What is it that they um, hold together? Together, what is it that they hold to be true and Paul affirms, we're coming from the same place. We have the same starting point. And what he was saying would have been testified to in the Law and the Prophets. Well, then we get to verse 23. Look at that with me. Of this man's offspring, of King David's offspring, that is, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus, as he promised. In the Old Testament, it had been prophesied that a descendant of King David would come and that he would be the true king of Israel. And with this mention of David 
and the connection to the true Jewish king, to Jesus Christ, um, David, uh, uh, Paul is bringing the Jewish story and the Christian story together. He was bringing the Jewish story and the Christian story together. He wants them to see that the true king that they were waiting for came a few years ago because they had not heard about him. They did not understand that he was the one that they were waiting for. They didn't understand that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament law is all about. They didn't understand that Jesus was the one that all the prophecies of the Old Testament was all about. And Paul is about to tell them much more about Jesus than he has told them thus far. So we get to verse 26, and... So, you know, I know the king you've been waiting for. The whole bunch of Jews killed him. How do, you, how do you think, if you were a faithful Jewish person in that synagogue, how do you think you would have felt about that? That, that would have been a, 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 probably a, a hard one to swallow. All right? And so, and like I said earlier, next week we're going to see how people responded to everything that Paul is teaching in this passage. So look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, there's the Jewish people, and those among you who fear God, those are the Gentile converts. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's saying, you all are awaiting a Savior. Well, we know about the Savior. So listen up and hear about him, because we're about to tell you more. Verse 27, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him, that is, Jesus the Messiah, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found... We'll we'll stop verse 27. You all, the Jews, the majority of Jews, and the rulers ignored the prophets. But you all, they memorized... As children, giant pieces, giant chunks, giant sections of the law and the prophets. They were familiar with the word. They heard the word. They could talk about it and sound like they knew what they were talking about. You all, the word of God was all around them, but they did not heed the word of God. They did not know what the word of God was about. And and this is just a a great moment in the scripture to say, you know, we brought in this small group Bible study into our Sunday morning gathering for a reason. Because in our traditional American church gathering, it's really easy just to like partway listen, if you listen at all, and to only have one leader handling the scripture. It makes it really easy to make this mistake of not having an understanding of what the scripture is saying. So we did not want a church full of people like this, or even a few people like this. Now, I'm sure somebody here may you know, share this in common with them. I ask you to evaluate and reflect on your own life. Are you so comfortable with the word of God? Like, like is it, Are you so comfortable with it that it's not transforming your life? Or 
Like, do you know what it says, but you don't know what it means? Or just, are you around it all the time, but you're just going to do whatever you want to do with your life, regardless of what it says? You all, that's what these people did. And I want to ask you not to make that mistake. Because they didn't understand, they actually murdered the one they had been waiting for. That's harsh, isn't it? But it's true. When we don't understand the Scripture, when we don't heed it or obey it, we turn into monsters. We turn into monsters. And if you, you could raise your hand right now and say, I was a monster! <laughs> but then God saved me. And so let us heed the Word of God. Verse 28, Though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. Y'all, this would have fit at our conference yesterday. Okay? I preached on the shedding of innocent blood. You, you must not shed innocent blood, the Bible says. Well, here, Pilate, who was the governor, who was supposed to oppose and bring punishment against those who truly do evil and to protect those who do good, he got it all wrong here. Pilate got it backwards. He got it all wrong. In verse 28, even says... There was no guilt in Jesus worthy of death. And we know there was no guilt in Jesus, period. He was sinless. But in their perspective, from where Pilate was sitting, he's like, this man's not a criminal. You're bringing me this Jesus. You say he's another king. I've, I've grilled him. I, I, I've, I've interrogated him. I've checked him out. His story checks out. He's not my problem. I don't find any reason to execute him. But Pilate yielded to their requests, and he had a hand to play in the execution of Jesus. So we get to verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Jesus lived, he died Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and now he's buried. You all, he's in a tomb, okay? This is like Good Friday, this is like Saturday, this is like almost Sunday morning of Easter week. We get to ver begin in verse 30. We begin to see about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But God. Y'all, the powerful people had a plan. But God. The powerful people had a plan. But God. That's, that, that's a very hopeful truth right there. Wayne spoke on providence yesterday. And this is providence in action. God sees everything. He has his sovereign power. And he is providentially using evil people like Pilate and the Jews that did not heed the scripture to bring about and to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. God's bringing all that about. He's using bad people. He's using people that he hates. He's using evil to bring about good? How genius, how brilliant, how amazing and awesome is our God that He uses His greatest enemies to accomplish His purpose while never being tainted with evil Himself. Maintaining His purity, maintaining His holiness in every way. We serve an amazing God. So the powerful people killed Jesus, but God, verse 30 says, but God raised Him from the dead, 
For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he was around for about seven weeks. Okay? About seven weeks. One time he appeared to over 500 people. There were many other appearances recorded in the Scripture, and who knows how many countless experience or appearances were made that were not recorded in Scripture. We get to verse 32, and here we have gospel. And we bring you the good news. What does gospel mean? It means good news. Paul is saying, what I just shared with you is hard and difficult. But let me share you what's good with you what's good. Y'all, there's a lesson for us as we proclaim the gospel of the king. We often have to share what's difficult with those who are far from God so that we can share with them the good news. Only sharing the news. Hey, Jesus died and rose again. Oh, that's nice. Thank you very much. Doesn't have anything to do with me. But if you preach the law of God, if you use the law to bring condemnation and show someone their need for a savior, then, after sharing that difficult news, then sharing the good news that Jesus has lived, died, and rose again, people are much more open to listen. It is the law of the Lord that brings about conversion, it says in, I believe it's Psalm 19. So, we bring you the good news now. What God promised to the fathers. Y'all, that's important. What God promised to the fathers. Verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. God keeps his promises every time, doesn't he? He keeps his promises every time. And he makes a lot of promises. And some of the, many of those promises, he waits a really, really long time to answer those promises. Amen. There, were, there was anywhere from 400 years to... All right, all right, let's just do it like this. Think about the promises made to Abraham. We've preached through Abraham's life a couple years ago. So think about like Genesis 12. I'll make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That was roughly, uh, I think, like 1,400 years before Jesus lived. Then the prophet Malachi, that was 400 years before Jesus lived. So, so just think about all those promises that are made in this giant, in the majority of the Old Testament. Some of them had been made almost 1,500 years before that. And the most recent ones had been made 400 years before that. That's a whole, many generations, right? That's a lot of people. I want to ask you something. I want to tell you something first. Many of the promises of Scripture still haven't been fulfilled. Did you know that? We're still waiting for God to do stuff that he hasn't done yet. I want to ask you, are you willing to wait? Amen. My kids have to wait a lot, don't they? <laughs> Patience is a, something that everyone learns a lot of about at my house. But you as a child of God, can you patiently wait for God? I, I want to drop a thought. I don't think I've ever brought this thought to you before. I want to bring a very uncomfortable, it may be uncomfortable to some of you. What if it's 20,000 more years before Jesus returns? I, it, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and I hope you don't leave the church because I say that. But I need to ask that. When Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, like, they thought he was coming back like that week. And that was, you know, 1900 years, over 1900 years ago, right? 
They were wrong about that, right? And I know some of the stuff we've read about the end times has made us think that Jesus is going to come back in our life. What if he doesn't? Let me ask you this. Being that we have this situation in this passage where they had to wait a really, really long time for God to fulfill the promises. Like, is there any part of you that is disappointed currently that God hasn't come back like you thought he would have come back by now? And, and we haven't all thought that. But I have thought that in the past. And I've had to do some wrestling with that. You all, are you willing, if Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime, are you willing? And I really hope he does. I'd love to see him come. I'd love to not have to die. And all that stuff that will happen if he doesn't come back in my lifetime. Are you willing to faithfully and obey and endure all that God has for you? And are you, is there any part of you that is weary or disillusioned with God currently because you thought he would be back 10 years ago or at least by 2022? We must understand that God has a unique and special timetable. And we must be a people who are always ready for his appearing and his return. But as we've kind of absorbed and been influenced by some TV preachers and just some different things floating around out there in American Christianity, I think it's easy to say, well, I know he's coming back, so I don't really have to get that involved in the fight. Or I don't really have to gear up and equip. And I want us to, to, to know that he can come back any time. And we, want, we need to give it all we got regardless of when he's coming back. So, verse 32 and 33 continue to bring the Jewish and the Christian story together. He says, We bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Y'all, that's from Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Um, I think that's Isaiah 53. I don't, I didn't, no, Isaiah 55, I think. I did not write that down. Verse 35. You will not let your holy one see corruption. That's Psalm chapter 16. These three Old Testament citations work together as a group. And they support what is said in verses 32 and 33. That in Jesus, God fulfilled the promises that he had made to the fathers of a coming Messiah. So we have this idea of corruption. What does that mean? What does it mean in verse 34, when he was raised no more to see corruption? What does it mean in verse 35, you will not let your Holy One see corruption? It has to do with the decay of his body. The Old Testament said that when Messiah comes, when your king comes that you've been waiting for, he's going to die, but his body's not going to do like everyone else's body does and go through this natural process of breakdown and decay. 
He was in the tomb three days, right? It takes more than three days for your body to decay. In verse 34, when he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, he's talking about a kingdom. David was a king over a kingdom. Well, here, he's talking about the true king. He's talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler that they were waiting for who would deliver them. And they thought he was only going to be a political ruler and just deliver them from the evil of the Roman Empire. But no, he was a very different kind of ruler. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. He was the ruler of all things, and he delivered anyone who would come to him from something so much greater than political oppression, but from the sin that dwells within. What a king. What a savior. Amen, church? What a king. What a savior. This Jesus is the true king, and because he now lives and doesn't see corruption... Because he rose again from the dead, he is the eternal king. He will never die again. David died. So did King Saul before him. They stayed in the grave. But the grave had no hold on our risen king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. I wish I could go further with that, but I'm not. Verse 36. For David after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. You all, David served God's purpose for his own generation during his lifetime, didn't he? But he didn't do anything for anybody after he died, amen? But Jesus, who died and did not see corruption, but rose from the grave. You all, he is a true king that serves the purpose of God for all generations. Amen? Amen. He will never be dethroned. But he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And he has provided what was necessary for salvation for every man and woman who's ever lived, should they call on him as their, should they call on the king as their savior. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Can we speak that clearly to a dying world? Let it be known to you. Can we be so clear and bold and unafraid in our witness that we don't mumble and jumble up the gospel? Hey, we've all mumbled jumbled the gospel. You're, you're going to mumble and jumble the gospel sometime or another. Okay? And, and if you do, when you do, just get back up and you probably won't do it next time. You'll do better. All right? That's just part of the process, okay? I just want to put that out there. But I want to call you to do everything you can to speak clearly of the gospel. Speak clearly of the sins. Speak clearly of the holiness of God and the justice of God. Don't be afraid to talk about judgment. Don't be afraid to talk about hell. Don't be afraid to talk about mercy, kindness, grace, crucifixion, resurrection. 
put those facts out there. Talk about those things. Raise your kids. Teach them about all that stuff. You probably ain't going to teach them about every single thing all at one time. Teach them about this one day in one week. Teach them about that next Take every advantage you can with your friends, with your kids, whoever it is, to bring them the truths of the gospel and to speak clearly enough to say, let it be known to you. Like This is what you need to know, Paul is saying to them. And it's good news, right? Forgiveness of sins. Without which we have no hope. None at all. And I love 39. By Him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You all, people think Jesus is, is, is like going to take all your fun away. No, he, that's not what He's doing. The stuff that's ruined your life isn't no fun. People think that Jesus is just going to put the, the, the handcuffs on you, but the truth is... You already got handcuffs on. He's going to take them off. So that you can be who you're created to be, free from the power of sin. You all, the law of Moses didn't set people free. The law of Moses, it it did point them to God, no doubt about it. But one of the biggest roles that the law of Moses had was that it brought knowledge and awareness of sin and showed people their true state of condemnation under the judgment and righteousness of a holy God. So law just accused you, but the law does not save. And these Jews, at the beginning of the synagogue meeting, that's what they had was the law and the promises of someone who would come. But, But those promises weren't specific. Here, Paul is saying the promises have been fulfilled and what the law could not accomplish, the true king, Jesus Christ, did accomplish. And now you can be set free from the bondage of sin, from the control and power of that sin, and from the shame and the guilt that comes with it. We serve an amazing Savior, do we not, church? Verse 44 and 41 as we wrap up. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. All right, let's stop right there for just a second. Earlier in the sermon, he just said, the prophets have been telling stuff, but a lot of the Jews didn't listen to it. And all that was history, right? All that was past. That didn't, the people who were hearing this you, you know, weren't guilty of that. Other people were in Judea and Jerusalem. Well, here Paul is saying, don't be like them. Don't do what they did. So beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. We get to verse 41. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Isn't that a great way to end the sermon? Uh, Paul, what's talking about? All right, so I'm glad you asked. What's Paul talking about? You all, this is from Habakkuk 1.5. We preached through Habakkuk a few years ago. I think Joe preached on this passage. Habakkuk 1.5. Who's Habakkuk? Habakkuk was a prophet uh, just a little bit before the Jews were, before Jerusalem was ransacked and the Jews were carried to slavery in Babylon. Habakkuk is praying. He's a man of God. And, and, and there's very few people in his day that love God. 
and he's praying, and he's like, God, my nation is so wicked, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and Lord, just talk to me. I need some revelation here so I can have hope for the future. And, and the big picture of what God tells Habakkuk is that, yes, your people are evil, but I'm going to raise up a nation that's even more evil, and they're going to come and destroy you, and then I'm going to raise up a different nation to come and destroy them. And then Habakkuk's like, you can't do that, God. And, and so anyway, but if you want to know what happens after that, I'll tell you later. But in God's response to Habakkuk's initial complaint, God says this, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Right here, God's wishing condemnation on those who won't listen to him. What God was about to show Habakkuk is just and wild and hard to believe is what God is getting ready to do in Antioch, you all. When it says in verse 41, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe. The work being referred to here is about the nations coming to Jesus and the kingdom of God spreading and advancing throughout the earth. Paul is there telling them about their Savior. And then he drops Habakkuk 1.5, knowing that some of them would scoff in the message. And oh my, if you've read ahead, they certainly do, don't they? He brings up Habakkuk 1.5 and he says, you all who scoff, I want you to be astounded at the end when your judgment comes. He says, you will perish. You scoffers, your destiny, your future will be that you perish because you don't accept the work that I'm about to do. So in Habakkuk's day, that was like, Oh, God's bringing judgment on our nation. I better repent. But they didn't listen to Habakkuk. I mean, Habakkuk had a hard time listening to God. They didn't listen to God through Habakkuk. And Paul's saying this, knowing there would be scoffers in the audience, and their response proves this to be true. To sum up verses 40 and 41, here's what he's saying. It's a plea. He's saying, believe what I am preaching or you will certainly perish just as they did when they did not heed the warnings of the Old Testament prophets. And he says, don't make the same mistake. And as I reflect on this passage, I want to ask you, don't make the mistake of scoffing at the word of God. Don't just brush it away and say, it's not that important. I'll be okay without it. I don't need it as much as you think I do. Don't dismiss the words of the Lord. And this book is true. Take it seriously. Do not do what these people did and miss out on what God is doing in our day. In response to this, let us have a time of silence. And in our silence, let us respond to God quietly as individuals. Let us pray. Let us pray and talk to him. And he's spoken to us. Let us speak back to him.